0: Now this morning, I want to um, preach on the Sabbath, resting in the lord, the lord 's day, or the Christian Sabbath. And your key words for our worshipers in training are lord's day, Sabbath, and rest and I was just sitting here thinking that you are all still functioning as though it was 10.30, so I have an extra hour this morning. It's great. And that's a good thing, because I have a lot of notes. (laughs) Really, unfortunately, for some time now, this idea uh, of the Sabbath um, and surrounding Sunday has been very controversial in the church. And a lot of questions raise uh, raise up when we start to uh, consider this. For example, what is Sunday for? Is it any different from other days of the week? And if so, how? Related to that is, uh, what about the fourth commandment? Does that apply to Christians today? It is smack dab in the middle of the Decalogue, so we really have to deal with it. We can't just kind of pass over it. There is something there that we need to look at. Uh, the, the Sabbath in the Old Testament and that that Jesus observed was on Saturday. So why do we worship on Sundays? And why do we call Sunday the Lord's Day? What are we doing on the Lord's Day and what shouldn't we do on the Lord's Day? A lot of important questions that we need to ask. And so before we get into this, I want to um, offer a warning up front. For some of you, your tendency is going to be to raise objections and to claim legalism if you've not thought a lot about this issue. I'm just asking you this morning to hear me out and to uh, really let this morning be perhaps the beginning of what I hope will be a discussion that starts amongst us. Uh, that can be worked out in our homes and in our small groups and then as a church as a whole. It's a very important issue, uh, so it's important for us to understand it and to discuss it. So, hear me out. Promise? <laughs> if you get through it and you still disagree, we'll chat. We'll begin with the uh, London Baptist Confession, our Confession of Faith, in chapter 22, verse, uh, uh, paragraphs 7 and 8. "...as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, He has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week." And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The Sabbath is then kept kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and wholly rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercise of His worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So this is our confession of faith. This is what we say we believe according to the Scriptures. And this is... Uh, what we think is the best description of what the Scriptures teach on the whole. So it's important that we fully understand what that means and that we're seeking to apply this in our lives. So uh, three major things I want to do this morning. First is we're going to fly through the Bible and look at how the Sabbath unfolds from the beginning to the end. And throughout, I will address several arguments against the Christian Sabbath. Second, I want to discuss how the Sabbath became the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. And thirdly, uh, how answer the question, how should Christians observe the Lord's Day today? So first, let's turn to the Bible. And I'm, I'm going to fly through the Scriptures. Uh, we have a lot to cover. So if you can't keep up with flipping through, you're not a, you, you didn't win the sword drills when you were, in, uh, when you were a, a child, just listen. Just listen, and you'll you'll absorb more. I'm going to begin with creation, Genesis chapter two, verses one through three. We see in chapter 1, God has created the earth and all that is within it. And then we read at the beginning of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in Creation. So, God creates everything in six days. He rests on the seventh. He calls the seventh day holy. He rested. The Hebrew word is sabat, which means to cease and desist from labors. To rest from your daily work. Now, The question we could ask about creation is, why did God not create in six seconds, or six minutes, or six hours? Instead, He created in six Days and added yet another day, so there were seven. Well, God was establishing a pattern, and we're going to see this pattern time and again through the Scriptures. Six days of work, one day of rest. We'll also see throughout the Old Testament, the keeping of this day of rest is a hallmark of whether or not people were for or against God. Many times, God said that He could know the condition of one's heart because He could see how they viewed or observed or didn't observe the Sabbath. So if, for a man, the Sabbath were a delight, if he saw it as a holy and honorable day, it would show what his heart was really like, and he would find joy in the Lord. And we will talk more about that in a minute. So we flip forward to Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus 16, we see the Israelites wandering in the desert. Now, very important to recognize here as we look at this. This is prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. We're not going to see that for four more chapters. So, what is going on here is prior to the Israelites receiving the fourth commandment. In chapter 16 of Exodus, verse 23. Moses said to the people, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. And then uh, we see uh, from this that God is providing food from heaven. He's giving manna from heaven. And then it carries on. In, uh, he says, um, So they laid it aside till morning. Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather it. Every day, God was giving enough for everyone to gather. And on the sixth day, they were to gather a double portion to be held over to the necks. It did not rot. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Remember, this is pre-10 commandments. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So they're collecting the manna from heaven. God told them their their means of measurement was one omer each day. And then on the sixth day, they were to collect two omers. Why? Why? because this is what the Lord commanded. We saw in verse 23. So we see in here somewhere between creation and this time of the Israelites in the desert, they were very aware that God has commanded this day called the Sabbath. He's making clear in what he's saying that I have commanded this. These are my commandments. This is my law. How long will you go on disobeying that which I have commanded? And then we see four chapters later in Exodus 20, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. (laughs) The fourth commandment beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. well, there's, there's really six implications given in the command itself for us to consider. And I'm going to name them and then we'll, we'll walk through them as we continue on. The first is to remember the Sabbath. In other words, plan accordingly. Prepare for the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath. This was His command in the fourth commandment. Secondly, to keep it holy. Do not, in other words, do what God forbids and... On the contrary, then, do what He commands. Third, He says to do all of your work in six days. And so the work week is six days. Not seven and not five, which most of us are accustomed to, but the work week is six days. So He says work hard and finish your work in six days. Fourth, keep the seventh day to the Lord or unto God. Fifth, do not work and do not cause others to work. And notice, he even says to not make your livestock work. Keep your animals from doing labor as well. Six, the why of all of this is answered. Why has he commanded this? Well, the command is rooted in the institution of this day at creation. Notice in verse 11, he refers back to God creating everything in six days. God working over six days and setting the seventh day aside for rest. These are all very important. So what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Let's look to Isaiah chapter 58. To find the purpose that God has given the Sabbath Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. The prophet writes, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly... Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so we see four great promises here for those who keep the Sabbath. The context here is that God is rebuking the people for just going through the motions, yet while simultaneously clinging to their sin holding on to the sin in their life. And he says the anecdote to this is the great privilege of the Sabbath and the blessing that is attached to such a day. So, four great promises of the Sabbath. First, unsurpassed communion with God. He says, you shall take delight in the Lord. This word delight literally means exquisite pleasure. You shall take exquisite pleasure in the Lord. So it's a day like no other in communion with God. It's to be overwhelmed by His beauty and His glory that are revealed in His attributes and in His work. And so to enjoy special fellowship and communion with Him, responding with gratitude and delight as He manifests His love in our lives. So first blessing of the Sabbath is unsurpassed communion with God. Secondly is great victory. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, God says. This is language of victory. We see it also in Deuteronomy chapters 32 and 33. God promises Israel great victory over her enemies. The return from exile is a picture of the victory promised in the new covenant promises of Christ. And we see again in the New Testament a promise of victory as well, right? In Romans chapter 8, verses 37, Paul writes, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so we have victory over Satan and sin. And so we see that Sabbath keeping is a means of grace given to help us die to sin and grow in holiness. To gain victory over our sin. And so another purpose of the Sabbath is great victory over Satan and sin. The third promise of the Sabbath is the promise of practical enjoyment of the benefits of our salvation and the enjoyment of God Himself. God says, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. God promises Israel that they will enjoy the inheritance promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the application for us is that our inheritance includes the benefits of our salvation. We enjoy the benefits of adoption, of assurance, of salvation, of our boldness and confidence in prayer, and all that God calls us to do. It's a day to enjoy these great benefits. And fourth is a certainty of the promise. We see this when the prophet writes, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God is saying as a whole, if you keep my Sabbath and delight in it, you will delight in me. You will gain spiritual victory and enjoy your inheritance. And so one would say, well, this is in the Old Testament. And so we can't apply the principle of blessing that are only to be applied to Israel. But we have to remember that we are arguing from creation and from the moral law of god not the ceremonial law not the civil law we talked about this several weeks ago we are arguing from the moral law that god gave to apply to how many men all men the law applies to all mankind so let's look also at the new testament And before we get into the passages, I want to point out that it's very important for us to understand the backdrop that Jesus came into in terms of the Pharisees' abuse of the Sabbath when looking at what He did and what He didn't do on the Sabbath day. At Christ's coming, the Sabbath was already fixed firmly into the life and rhythm of Israel, and it was done so to a great fault. The Pharisees and the Jewish lawyers invented laws for Sabbath keeping that were an unbearable yoke for the people. And it found itself in even the most trivial manners of life. They addressed areas that Scripture never even came close to touching. Let me give you a few examples. And you can even find these. They're written in the Jewish Talmud. A limit was set on how far one could travel on the Sabbath, and they said that was 2,000 cubits. But you could overcome that limit. The night before the Sabbath, you could set food out, about 2,000 cubits from your house. And when you arrive at that spot, you can say, Oh, this is my new home because there's a meal for me here to enjoy. So from there, I could travel 2,000 cubits. And so now I have 4,000 cubits. But I can be even more subtle than this. And I could um, I could attach or link buildings together by uh, by laying a plank across the roofs. And so I could say that that's part of my home, and I can do that all the way down the block. So my 2,000 cubits doesn't even begin until I get to the end of the block. Another example, a household fire. If you had a fire in your home, it was to be extinguished prior to the Sabbath because there was to be no cooking on the Sabbath day. You were not even allowed to let an egg bake itself in the sun. You could ride your donkey on the Sabbath day only if you had saddled him the night before. Women were not allowed to wear a pin on jewelry on the Sabbath because someone might ask them if they could see it and they would take it off. And by taking it off and holding it in their hand, they would be bearing a burden or a load on the Sabbath day. If you cut your finger You could always put a little piece of cloth around it to keep it from bleeding out. But if you suspected that doing so was assisting your body in the healing process, this would be breaking the law because you were causing your body to do unnecessary work. You were allowed to dip a radish in salt, but you couldn't leave it in the salt for too long or else you might begin pickling it. If there was dirt on your clothing... You could brush it off, but you could not rub it. You could throw something in the air and catch it with the same hand, but if you caught it with the other hand, it was considered work. If moving hay for animals, you had to use a hand other than the one used the rest of the week. And my favorite, if a hen that was being fattened for the table lays an egg, then that egg could be eaten since egg-laying was not the hen's daily work. However, if an egg-laying hen laid an egg on the Sabbath, she was working and the egg could not be eaten. But if you recall, you can't cook on the Sabbath, so your egg would have to be consumed raw. Lovely. They're humorous to us, but this was... What the yoke of the Jewish people were under because the leaders made these laws and many more just like them. So we have to understand this backdrop as we approach looking at what Jesus did on the Sabbath day. Look with me to Matthew chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, "...at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, 'Look, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence?" which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what that means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We'll read shortly verses 9 through 14. But first, Jesus is correcting this false teaching of the Pharisees. He's bringing the Sabbath back to light of what it is all about. And here he is dealing with what we call deeds of necessity. Deeds of necessity. And I want to show you that these are not exceptions to the Sabbath, but they are part of the Sabbath. That we would do necessary things on the Sabbath day. Now, it is very easy to become either legalistic or very licentious in this area. But we have to ask the question as we determine, what is a deed of necessity? The question we must ask is, does it serve the purpose of what the day is intended for? Now, I don't think our issue is mainly legalism. I think it's probably more on the side of license. We're like children, always sort of seeking to push the boundaries of, of what rules are established for us to say, how far can I get before the hammer drops? So let me give you an example. Does me, not finishing some of my work that needs to be completed for Monday morning, by Saturday night, make it a necessity for me to work on Sunday? No. My negligence earlier does not constitute a necessity all of a sudden. Now, on the contrary, does me as a pastor necessitate me working on a Sunday? Well, yes, of course. It is a necessity. If my daughter is on a diet of milk now, and I realize I'm out and I don't have a means to get any, it then becomes a necessity for me to obtain milk. But if I want milk for my cereal instead of eating a piece of fruit, that's a different story, right? So I know this sounds like hair splitting, and this is where we get to where we can say, well, that seems very legalistic, that seems very pharisaical. What we are saying is that we need to challenge ourselves to consider the purpose of the sabbath in other words is what i am doing unto the lord it is a day set aside to focus on the lord to set my thoughts and my affections on the lord and not myself and doing so is profitable to me it's a blessing as we saw in isaiah it is not a burden So, if my kid's soccer game is scheduled on a Sunday, does it all of a sudden become a necessity because I cannot change the schedule? No. In my home, as we apply this, it it very clearly and without question means my kids won't be playing in that game. Why? Because it does not serve the purpose of what that day is intended for. Another example. I know it's hard for some of you to believe. Before I came to Ephesus Church, I used to race in Ironman triathlons. I'd love to do it again. It's one of the things I really hate about Tracy Bernstein being right about. She said, when you come to Ephesus, you're going to gain a lot of weight. I didn't believe it, but it happened. (laughs) Now, I would love to race again. But most of these races are held on Sundays. And so unless that changes... I'm not racing. Why? Because that does not serve the purpose of the day. And I know it sounds like maybe I'm, again, splitting hairs, or maybe I'm just picking on sporting events, but let's be honest. What other than our jobs maybe consumes more of us on Sundays? And really, the entire weekend. Now, my intent is not to highlight the negative here, but to point to the negative to highlight the positive. In other words, my obedience to God, my observance of what He has commanded, and my determined focus on Him for an entire day every week, which He has determined is to be His for all mankind. And it's far greater than any temporal joy that is obtained from a sporting event or some self-serving pursuit. Now this, of course, is an area that we all need to determine for ourselves in each instance because otherwise we're no better than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And we will make it a book of additional rules just as the Jews did. But the point here is that we're not looking for the out, hopefully. Instead, we're asking the right question. Is this necessary and does it serve the purpose of the day? Remember, the Sabbath is a blessing to us, and it is a blessing when it is rightly observed, namely, unto the Lord. So these are deeds of necessity. Secondly, we see Jesus working on deeds of mercy. Verse 9 of chapter 12 of Matthew, "...He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is a classic confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Knowing that Jesus would come to the synagogue to worship on the Sabbath, they set a trap. Now, notice they knew where to find Jesus on the Sabbath. He did not abolish the fourth commandment, he upheld it, he kept it. Now, consider that they assumed Jesus was able to heal. What an amazing insight into the wickedness of their hearts and the depth of their depravity. They never stopped to ask, who is this who can heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead? Instead, they said, we know he can do these things, so let's set a trap. So the Pharisees elaborately set the scene. They positioned a man with a twisted, paralyzed arm in a place impossible for Jesus to miss as he entered the synagogue. And as soon as he enters, what do they ask him? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, the reality is they didn't care what Jesus' opinion was. They were looking for grounds to discredit him. The issue was not God's law, but their own law. According to their tradition, no one could heal unless a life was in immediate danger on the Sabbath. Even in Luke thirteen fourteen, we read one of the religious leaders saying, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But they knew that Jesus would heal the man. He never turned away the needy. They thought Jesus was right where they wanted Him. And combined with parallel accounts, we see this whole thing unfold. Jesus tells the man, rise and come forward. We see that in Luke 6. Placing the poor man in the middle of the congregation, he asks, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This is the question he asks in Mark 3. Why does Jesus take the bait here? He could have healed the man later on instead of stepping into their trap. And notice, most of Jesus' confrontations in the Scriptures are about what He does on the Sabbath. Obviously, the correct observance of the Sabbath is so important to Him that He aggressively seeks the occasion to free the day from the laws of men by scraping away centuries of filth. And on this observation alone, it is to me quite a stretch to claim that the New Testament is silent regarding the fourth commandment. Jesus had much to say regarding the Sabbath. And he provokes this challenge with a three-fold challenge in a series of questions. Matthew doesn't record the first one, but puts it in a statement. Mark and Luke write that Jesus asks, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? oh Pharisees, you're caught now in your own trap. The answer to his question is obvious. Since it is never lawful to do harm or destroy, they would have to say it is lawful to do good and save a life. The answer is necessary because a failure to do good is to do harm, and the failure to save a life, while it is in one's power to do so, is to kill or destroy. So this is how we interpret the law. The opposite of what is commanded is forbidden. The opposite of what forbidden is commanded. So, for example, God forbids adultery, and therefore, in doing so, He commands faithful, monogamous marriage. So Jesus rightly implies that if it is one's power to do good, he must do so. And if one has the opportunity and the ability to save a life but does not do so, it is sin. So his question silences them. His second question is aimed right at their wallets. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? According to man-made laws, if livestock fell in a ditch, one could lower food and water down to it. And laws made provisions for getting animals out of the ditch on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus said, do you do more good to your animals than to other human beings on the Sabbath? This is where we get our phrase, my ox is in a ditch. The third question of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So by implication, he's saying to them, your law allows you to feed and water and save one dumb animal on the Sabbath, but forbids one who has the divine power to heal a man. More forcibly, he states the same type of thing in Luke 13 after healing a woman who has been bent over for 18 years. He rebukes the leaders and says, who said, heal on one of the other six days, not on the Sabbath. He says, you hypocrites! Does not Each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus' logic is irrefutable. A person made in God's image is infinitely more valuable than an animal. And again, they were silenced. And so the obvious conclusion we see in Matthew twelve twelve is Jesus saying, so then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath and Jesus heals the man. So here's a very important point of application here for us too. There are certain deeds and there are certain professions necessary for the protection and preservation of life and the promotion and well-being of our neighbors. And these things are appropriate on the Sabbath and should not be a negative burden to these people, but something we should all be thankful for. So I'm talking about those who may be doctors and PAs and nurses and police and soldiers and firemen. As they work on the Sabbath, they're not violating the Sabbath. They're doing a deed of necessity and in many ways doing deeds of mercy. So as we are looking at the Sabbath discussion in the New Testament, it is very important to see what is recorded from Jesus' words in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. He says, "...the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath." So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus is addressing the Sabbath very directly because He's being accused of not keeping it. Notice the context is, again, they're walking through the grain field and eating grain on the Sabbath. There's nothing illegal about their actions. It wasn't illegal to do that. They were not stealing. The issue is that they did it on the Sabbath. So Jesus responds by saying the Sabbath was made for man in Mark 2.27. Now there's three important elements here. First, He says the Sabbath was made. In other words, it had a beginning. It came into existence. It's the same language of creation. We We see this in John 1. All things were made through Him. It doesn't go back to Exodus 20. It goes back to Genesis 2, to creation. He says the Sabbath was made for man, all of mankind and not just Israel. And third, he says it was for man. It's for man's benefit. It's for man's well-being. So Jesus doesn't downgrade the Sabbath. He doesn't say, I'm abolishing the Sabbath. I'm doing away with the fourth commandment. I'm putting an end to it. No, instead he corrects a wrong view of it by purposefully ignoring the pharisaical laws and their legalism because they were violating the very purpose of the day, which was for the good of man, not for the carrying of a heavy yoke. In verse 28 he says, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We see parallel passages in Mark 2, uh, 23-28 to that is Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's referencing the laws of the Pharisees. You're laboring under these, they are heavy, they are a burden. Take me on instead. And so Jesus is calling them to adhere, to love, and to walk in the great purpose of this day. Now, very quickly, I want to address one aspect of this that is always raised in his objection to the Christian Sabbath. That is Paul's statement in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath or Sabbaths. Now, addressing false teachers who were calling Christians to hold to a Jewish teaching is what what Paul is doing here. He's speaking of Sabbaths, plural. Not the Sabbath day, but the celebrations of the Jews. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Harvest, uh, the Feast of Ingathering. All of these were known as Sabbaths amongst the Jews. The New Moons and the Sabbaths are referenced uh, even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 1 and Hosea chapter 2, we see these references to Sabbaths. We're talking about festivals here. So, for example, the seventh year was known as a Sabbath year and the 50th year was a special Sabbath. All of these were Old Testament signs or pictures of the coming of Christ and as such was fulfilled in Jesus. So nowhere does Paul or any of the apostles or Jesus specifically instruct the early church against the application of the fourth commandment. The fact that they said very little about it says more than it doesn't, in that it appears very evident from the Scripture and also from outside the Scripture that they did, in fact, observe a Sabbath. So the burden of proof is not on those of us calling us to uphold the Sabbath. But instead, since it is nowhere struck down or forbidden or eliminated in the Bible, the burden of proof is on those who claim it was abolished or it no longer applies to Christians. So what about Sundays, the Lord's Day? What is the issue with Sunday and why do we call it the Lord's Day? Very quickly, this word, Lord's Day, was not some invention by Baptist preachers. It began with the first church, and it is rooted in Scripture. Literally, it means a day belonging to the Lord. In the same way, we see 1 Corinthians 11.20, a reference to the Lord's Supper, the Supper belonging to the Lord. The Christians in the first century were quickly distinguishing themselves from the Jews. They wanted to be seen wholly different than another sect of Judaism. And we see they followed the same pattern of six days of work, one day of rest, but the day of rest was moved to Sunday. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you know this is significant because it was a change made within the church. And apparently nobody had anything bad to say about it. So it's a big deal. It must have come uh, from the Lord Himself. Now the phrase, the Lord's day, is tied to the first day of the week, to Sunday. It was used by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. That's where we get that. He says, it was on the Lord's day that he was observing something significant. And he received a vision of the book of Revelation. He's saying, on the Lord's day. He was in worship, the first day of the week. Also, Isaiah fifty eight thirteen, the Sabbath day is referred to as the Lord's holy day. I assure you, this is not lost on the disciples. Prior to that, we see the first day of the week as significant because it was the day of Jesus' resurrection. It was the day Jesus first appeared to the disciples on the first day of the week. It was the true fulfillment of Psalm one hundred eighteen twenty four. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The day of Pentecost was on the first day of the week. And in 1 Corinthians 16.2, we see the church was gathering on the first day of the week. Paul was with the church of Troas in worship on the first day of the week. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we read of the second day or the third day of the week. So we often see the first day. That is very significant. And if you look in church history, I don't have time to go through all of these, but many of the early church readers Wrote about the first day as a special day of worship. I'll give you one. Justin Martyr in A.D. 155 described a service on the first day of the week, Sunday, which included prayers, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and preaching. Sounds like a worship service to me. And we have same sorts of comments from various other church fathers from the first century. The first century church established after the resurrection of Christ was meeting on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. It is significant to us. Lastly, Christian Sabbath observant. We call this the Lord's Day, we call it the Christian Sabbath. And you may be thinking, great. He wants all of us to sit around the house and stare at each other in deep theological conversation all day long. And if we even once think about something other than the Bible, we're in sin. That's not what I'm saying. Please remember, I'm hoping that we see the purpose of the Christian Sabbath and to understand that God created it for our joy. And when we have this perspective, it really helps us to understand the beauty of such a day. So a few implications for us to consider and we'll be done. First, rest from our labors. For those of us who are hard workers, this is one of the most encouraging aspects of the fourth commandment. In the Old Testament, three different words are used in this part of God's command. One meaning do not work, another meaning rest, and another one meaning be refreshed. Be refreshed on the Lord's day. That doesn't mean we sit in front of our TVs all day or we take a six-hour nap because we're lazy. Rest is not laziness. Rest is simply that we're not doing our labors We're not causing others to labor either. This is an important element of the fourth commandment. Remember, he called us not even to make the livestock work. So that would certainly apply to all other men. Now, the objection would be, well, if I go somewhere, someone would be there working anyway. Well, maybe, but I ought not be the cause of it in any way if I'm not engaged in anything that would cause another to work on that day at all. It is wholly unfair that I would enjoy the blessing of the Sabbath while preventing someone else from doing the same, even if they don't realize it. It doesn't matter. It is a command unto all men. Even for those who will not use the day unto the Lord, it is uh, It is this aspect of God's common grace, that it could benefit all mankind. So for the believer, one day per week points us to the reality of this eternal heavenly rest. So be refreshed on the Lord's Day. Another implication is that the Lord's Day is a memorial day, that we remember that God has created and God has redeemed. Remember that God has redeemed His people. When this law, the fourth commandment, was repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, God attached to it, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's saying, remember your deliverance. Remember the cost of the blood of the firstborn that God set aside for you. Remember the Lord. Remember what God has done in creating and redeeming. Another implication, of course, is worship private worship, family worship, and corporate worship. Rest in the Lord is really synonymous with worship when we talk about God's purpose for the Christian Sabbath. We are resting in the Lord. Rest enables the day to be set aside for worship because we are resting from our labors. That doesn't mean we shut off our minds, it doesn't mean we shut off our hearts. So there is an oughtness of the fourth commandment. We ought to observe the Christian Sabbath. But there's also a privilege that we get to spend an entire day focused on the Lord. We get that. What a joy for the Christian. Personally, our application in my home is this. We spend the morning here. We spend time talking uh, to a family or whoever joins us um, after worship about spiritual things we discuss the sermon we discuss what the lord is doing in our lives we spend time reading books to spur us on the greater faithfulness and spiritual growth we might take a short nap to rest take a walk with the family enjoy a game or two and do our family worship and go to bed that's a great day and i tell you i absolutely look forward to that every single week it is a great great day Remember that this is to be a day unto the Lord. Remember it's the Lord's day, not the Lord's three hours in the morning. It's not unto me, it's unto the Lord. We all have to answer this ourselves, not legalistically, but realistically. There is a big difference. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? If We fulfill that. Surely we have great freedom in that. We love the law as believers. As a result, we love to know that God has given us His commandments for our joy, for our benefit, for our growth. A few more. Unavoidable work. Some of you may be saying, well, I have a job and I I can't get away from it. They won't let me off. I've talked to several of you about this and helped you work through it. That is, that you may be an employee and your employer insists of your working on the Lord's Day. What do you do? A few things to consider. First, request that you not work on Sundays. Maybe it's a good opportunity to talk about why. Secondly, if you insist on it, maybe you can see if they're able at least, at the very least, to be scheduled later on so that at least you can take part in corporate worship. Thirdly, if you are made to work on the Lord's Day, work faithfully as you would any other day of the week because it is pleasing to God. And fourthly, perhaps keep an eye out for another job. Maybe find a way that you can keep the Lord's Day. Lastly, I think it's very important that we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Day. Avoid the stress of a hurried morning to get here. A quickly thrown together meal because we didn't prepare it beforehand. A scurry to clean the house because people might come over after church. Saturday night needs to have some time set aside for the preparation of our hearts and of our homes and of everything that will be used to serve us on Sunday. Personal experience tells me that it is far greater to go into the Lord's Day prepared and rested and ready to worship and be hospitable than to rush through the day and scurry about to get everything ready. Now, many of these things are what we as your elders take into consideration in our decision not to load our Sunday schedule down as a church. We don't want you to end the Lord's Day feeling more exhausted than you did on Friday evening. We want you to be encouraged in the Lord, knowing the sweetness and the joy of our salvation and of our great Creator and Redeemer. We want you to be ready to serve the mission field of your work for the next six days. So we must all remember the purpose of the Sabbath. We must all remember that God has designed this day for our good. And it is very important that we understand that. And I pray that we would be a people who are serious about the Christian Sabbath. That we would encourage one another to apply these things to our lives for our good, for our joy. Because the Lord has given us a day to rest in Him every single week. In my own life, I saw the greatest spiritual growth and application of what we are learning in the scriptures, and an excitement going into the new week when this, when we started applying Sabbath principles in our lives. And believe it or not, I'm a little I'm wound a little bit tight. And the Lord is good to not just give me a day, uh, but to tell me to use it well. There are going to be days when we're tempted to say, but. I mean, I'll be in worship. What's the big deal? I just once, there's something out there. But that's me saying I know what's best. Pretty much sums up the sins of our lives, right? We know what's best. But to be very honest with you, I absolutely love the Lord's Day. And I look forward to it each week. And it's such a joy to worship and to rest and to focus our hearts on growing in Christ and resting in God as our Creator and Redeemer. Enjoying God's people and simply unplugging from the daily grind of the rest of the week. What a joy. What a privilege we have as believers. Let's thank the Lord together in prayer. Father, we are so very grateful that You have given us, not simply a command, but a command for our good for our joy that you have made very clear in the setting of time from the foundations of the earth that your people are given this great privilege to rest in you every week Lord help us to honor it as such not unto ourselves not as a means to celebrate ourselves and to have festivals and festivities that bring honor to us, but rather that we would do these things, all things on your day, unto you. Not as legal obedience, but as a means of great joy and satisfaction in who you are and what you have accomplished as Creator, as Redeemer, as our friend who gives us rest from our labor. Lord, it does not escape us that we could very well be commanded from you to work hard for seven days a week, 24 hours a day. But Lord, you give us rest. You have designed us for rest. And not only us, but all mankind. Help us to help others, whether they know and trust you or not. Help us to help them to rest in the Lord. Help us to honor the Sabbath. Help us to be in our families working out these great things that we can grow in our spiritual maturity together. That we would long for more of Christ. That we would look forward to this great day every week. That we would experience greater measures of joy and rest and satisfaction in Christ. That we would build stronger, greater community with one another. And that You would be honored and glorified. We love You. We thank You and praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.